All right, good morning, everybody. This class has tripled in size in a week, and I'm always happy for that. Uh, so this is what I said last week, and I'll say it again today. Uh, this is my most favorite thing in the whole world to do, is this one class. So the more people that are here always makes me happier because then more people are sharing in all this. Here's the one ground rule for this class, for everyone who was not here last time. Um, the coffee and the treats and everything there is for everybody. Have as much as you want or as much as you like. Leftovers are things I don't want because my wife makes all of that and then any leftover comes home with me. So if there's leftover, which typically there is, because uh, Carolyn loves to bake and makes plenty for everybody, take as much of it home with you as you want and don't feel bad about it. And if you need a container to carry it home in, we'll get you one. <laughs> the church is not hurting for take-home containers. Uh, that's the only ground rule here. If you have a question, interrupt me. I don't care. I love it. That, but that's what makes class better is that we are spending time asking the questions that you have. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you have a question that is something you want to know, even if everybody else already knows it, then it's valuable because it's something that you want to know. So don't be afraid of what anybody else is going to think. Everybody here is nice, and this is a good class and a good setting. We're all friends here. Okay. Uh, we might need another chair. Morning. Okay. There's a chair here. Oh, okay. A whole family affair. Great. Um, let me get you the handouts. Everything that I gave out last week, I'll give to you. Here, you know what? Uh, this, is the, this is the rest of the pile. These are all the copies that I have. You can, ta you can take them all. Um, do you need an extra schedule? Okay. Then that's everything I handed out. That's all for you. Okay. I was just saying, there's coffee and there's treats. Have as much of it as you want or as much of it as you would like. I don't particularly care to take leftovers home, so if there's lots left and you want some, take it home. Uh, all right, let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, that by your protection we may be rescued from the threatening perils of our sins and saved by your mighty deliverance. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, for those of you who were here last week, do you have any questions about any of the things that we talked about? Because if you do, I want to get those out of the way now. So speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> okay, good. So we're going to jump in. Uh, we need to look back at this raccoon handout because that's, that's the thing we're starting at today. Uh, <clears throat> I splurged and print this in color because it's important for you to get the whole effect of the photo. It's a funny photo, and the reason why, not to spoil the joke, but if that raccoon could get well soon, he would, but he's not going to, so, because he can't, because he's dead. Once you're dead, there's no coming back from that. There is a finality 
to death. And this is actually, ironically, the place where this whole class starts is with death. This is what I said last week. Today, I'm going to convince you of two things, or try to, at any rate, try to convince you of two things. The first thing is this. There's only one story in all of Scripture. However, hundreds and thousands of pages in your Bible, there's really, it's all telling the same story, and that one story is death and resurrection. Everything in Scripture is death and resurrection. Why? Because everything in Scripture is about who? Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, and the centrality of Christ in the Scripture is the death and resurrection of Christ. So everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament points to Jesus. Then the Old Testament says, look what's coming, and we'll give you all kinds of signs, and it's going to be like this, but better. It's like the way that we talk about heaven. Well, it's going to be like this, except for way better, because we couldn't possibly explain to you how good it's going to be. That's the Old Testament. The Christ is coming, and it's going to be like this, but better. Then the New Testament says, the Christ has come, and it was like this. Everything is about Jesus. There's only one story, and it's death and resurrection. And you're a part of that story, too. And we'll see why in a little bit. The second thing that, that I'm going to convince you of, and this is actually one of my favorite of all of the, the days of class, this particular lesson, is that you don't make the decision for Jesus. That's this whole class, is you not being the one that makes the decision, but Jesus being the one who makes the decision for you. And that's, that's big. And that's, that's an important distinction to be made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to depart a little bit from that. Then, if you're familiar, this is Luther's Bondage of the Will. If you've read The Bondage of the Will, this is going to sound slightly familiar. But don't worry if you've never read it, because I, de I depart from Luther a little bit. Um, but here's the point, okay? What's not funny about this raccoon, you know, it's all funny when it's a raccoon, but what isn't funny is that it's actually you. So the idea that you can make the decision for Jesus is the point of this joke. Because you're the raccoon, and getting well soon is making the decision for Jesus. And it's funny, because you're dead. How do I know that you're dead? Let's look here. We're going to look at Ephesians. Whoops. Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, um, if you're unaware, one other thing that I should tell you about this class is, uh, is essential for you understanding how everything works here. I am not teaching you, first and foremost, how to be a Lutheran. That's not the point of this class. I want you to learn how to think like a Lutheran, but you can't learn how to think like a Lutheran until you first understand how you're supposed to think like a Christian. 
Your identity is first and foremost as a Christian. So much of what we'll be talking about is what does the Holy Christian Church, like we would say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in one Holy Christian and Apostolic Church, what does that Holy Christian and Apostolic Church say and how does she think? And then and only then can you say, how does a Lutheran, since we are a Lutheran church here, how does a Lutheran relate to what the wider church throughout her history has thought and said and believed about these things? So we're not starting with being Lutheran. We're going to end with being Lutheran because you have to know how to be a Christian first. Okay? So, let's look here. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, and you he made alive. Who's the you? Think just contextually. This is an epistle. This is a letter. By the way, um, if, when you, if you come to church here, uh, when you hear the readings announced, I always tell the kids this, you can actually laugh to yourself because you know something that most <laughs> most everybody else does not pick up on, and that is this. The, there's always an epistle reading, and the epistle reading is announced like this. The epistle is from the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. That's actually a redundancy. Most people don't pick up on that, but I'm saying the epistle is from the epistle. The letter for today is from the letter. And so you can all laugh about that to yourselves with a little smug grin of superiority because uh, you'll understand that that's a sort of a silly way to talk. And the way I talk, or the reason why I talk in that silly way is because I know that most people don't know I'm talking in a silly way. You should never trust a pastor. They're wily folks. <laughs> okay, so, but this is an epistle, which means it is a letter, and it is a letter written to whom? Yeah, okay, us. Right, so there's a historic context of the letter, which is that it was, obviously, it's written by Paul to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. But there is a wider context here, and that is, it's also written to you. These are epistles that are written and, and obviously we, they're in the Bible, which means these epistles are important. Not every epistle was important enough to be in the Bible. There are other, like epistles of Polycarp, epistles of Clement. Those things are really important and people should read them, but they're not the Bible important. Okay? But this letter is, because this is timeless. So it's you, and there's some argument in the church nowadays that, well, that doesn't apply to us because that was written to the Ephesians. And I'm not an Ephesian, so I can take a step back from this and say it doesn't really apply to me. But that's not the way to look at Scripture because this applies just as much to you now today as it did to the first century church at Ephesus. So you is really everybody. The Ephesians and you. You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. There it is. Uh, you're dead in trespasses and sins. The, the fun thing here is, 
There is a specificity in Greek, which is why I prefer Greek. My wife prefers Hebrew, but I think Hebrew is not good, not fun, because it's really loosey-goosey. I like the specificity. Tell me what something is and categorize it. So Greek has tons of different words for something like dead. And this particular word is nekros, which is one you're, you should be familiar with. A necropolis is a house of the dead. Uh, your, your flesh uh, gets sick and becomes, it, it gets necrosis, it, it dies if you have that kind of an infection. So nec necros is a word that means dead, dead, dead. So dead, you're the kind of raccoon that's not just flat, but kind of puffy and floating down the river. That's, that's where you are. So, you know, you can look at some of the deads and say, I don't know, like Miracle Max, well, there's mostly dead. And if you're mostly dead, well, then you have some hope because you can come back from mostly dead because there's that little bit that's, well, not quite. But if you're necros, if you're puffed up and floating down the river and the little boys are poking you with a stick, you're not really going to come back from that. You are beyond the point of being able to recover. It is dead, dead, and dead. And that's what you are. So the, the question then is, let's look at real life experience and, and say, how many of you have witnessed or heard of the body cold dead on the slab at the morgue that sat up, took the sheet off and said, hey, excuse me, could someone come put the paddles on me right now? I'd really, I'd actually like to be alive. Could you put just, just put the paddles on me and give me a nice good shot because I want to be alive now. You see, you're laughing because it's ludicrous. That doesn't happen. The dead person cannot ask to be made alive. Now that's physical and material, but the spiritual death works the same way. If you are dead in sins, which is, that's the beginning of the beginning. Who are you and where are you? Well, you are a sinner and that means you are dead. Dead, dead. Necros. You, there's no coming back from that. There's nothing that you can do at this point except for let the river take you where it will. You are dead, so you need somebody else. The body doesn't get to sit up and ask for the paddles. The paddles come at the will of another it is the work of another. And not only is it the work of another, this is very important, it is an external work. It is a work from the outside that comes to you and works on you, not something that works from the inside out. There is a tendency to get those two things confused. And often you can think or fall under the illusion that I am the one that is doing something. And that act originates inside and works out. But the Christian faith has, always has, begun from the outside in. Look at the incarnation. What is the direction of the incarnation? This is a perfect time to talk about that right here in the middle of Advent. What is the direction? What is the orientation of the incarnation? I'll give you two choices. Is it 
Man to God, or is it God to man? God to man. It's God to man. And not only is it God to man, but it is God into man. There is something from the outside that is not only coming to you, but is going into you, piercing inside of you. So that where everything originates is from the outside, and it comes in. That's, that's the state of man, that you are dead, but you are made alive. The, the language of Scripture is important, too. You know, my mother was an English teacher, so uh, I had grammar literally beaten into me. <laughs> and uh, I, she listens to all of these podcasts, so every now and then I'll just kind of Throw something in there knowing she can't say anything about it. Again, never trust a pastor. They're not as nice as they would have you think. Um, so uh, when you look at scripture, you know, the grammar is just as important there as it is in your, I don't know, your sentence diagramming. See, some, you kids, you guys don't diagram sentences, do you? Do you? When you, do you even know what that is, diagramming a sentence? Oh, you poor, poor spring chickens. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll do a little bit of that in this class. This class is a little bit of everything. Not for a while, though. Um, so when you, look, when you look at the Greek of the uh, New Testament, and then when you look at the translations of it, there are some things that are very important that are often easy to overlook. And some of those are, is the verb an active verb, or is it a passive verb? The difference, of course, being I do the active verb, I run, I sing, I cook. The passive is when it is done to me. Someone sings to me, someone cooks me, somebody makes me run. Okay? It's not me that's doing the work, then it's a work from the outside, an external thing that's being performed upon me. You, he made alive. That's from the outside in. Now, the other place that we can look here is, um, and we could, we could spend all of this time just on Ephesians 2, but we also need to look at Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Again, an eternal epistle, so this is just as much for us today as it was for the church at Colossus. Look at verse 13. I'll give you a little bit of context. I'll read these first verses. In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Here it is. You were circumcised. Is that active or passive? Passive. Passive. Something's being done to you. You didn't circumcise yourself. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead, again, the word is necros, dead, dead, dead. You being dead, how? In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
he, that is Christ, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. There's only one thing that is, the, that is ever the consequence of sin. One consequence of sin, and that is death. And it doesn't matter if your sin is thinking that your brother is a dummy, or your sister, uh, or robbing the bank. Or, I guess, to go with the brother and sister analogy, thinking that your brother or your sister is a dummy, or killing them because they are a dummy. They are the same. And having the thought that your brother or sister is a dummy still is something that merits death. And how can you not sin? <laughs> Try not sinning for a day. That's your homework. Try not sinning for a day. See how it goes. <laughs> there's, so there's this Lutheran radio program called Issues Etc. And it's pretty good. Every now and then they have a little bit of a strange thing happen, and I remember being in college and this happened. They put out a podcast of their episodes, so I would download the episodes and listen to them on the bus because I commuted to school. And I remember sitting there on the bus in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, and they introduced their, the guy they were interviewing, and it, he, was, he, was, um, he had an evangelical background, and they were talking about the Ten Commandments and something, and he just made the offhand statement about how, oh yeah, I don't sin anymore. And the host said, wait, 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 what? And said, oh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, I became a Christian and I don't sin anymore. I've never committed a sin. And he said, so, so, so you're telling me you drove your car here in, in, in St. Louis morning traffic and you didn't have any thoughts about any of the people that you were driving around with, that, that you, you only ever thought good things, you only ever did, you've, that you've never sinned at all. And he said, nope, never have. And I think the irony of that statement is to say, no, I've never sinned, is to sin. <laughs> it's like saying, I'm, I'm taking a class right now on C.S. Lewis, and we're talking about uh, uh, the, whether morality is something that is objective or subjective. And of course, it has to be objective. There is something that is good, and there is something that is bad. And uh, C.S. Lewis jokes about the people that think that morality is subjective, that I can decide for myself what is right and wrong and everybody, because in order to do that, you have to say, subjective morality is good. And the joke is, if you have to say subjective morality is good, then you have just made an objective claim about the thing you say is subjective which means you don't actually believe that it's subjective. That's the whole joke. So you can't not sin. Uh, in fact, it's the thing that you do the best. If you, if you really want to be complimented, you know, the Lord can say, oh, I'll give you a compliment. You're, you're a really great sinner. You're really good at that. You say, all right, Lord, thanks. At least there's something good you can say to me. <laughs> okay, so that's it. You're dead now. Um, let's look at this raccoon again. 
There he is. Here's the solution. If you die before you die, you will not die when you die. That's kind of my, that's my favorite thing in the whole world. I've got it on my computer, I've got it on my water bottle, I've got it everywhere. If I ever wanted to get another tattoo, which I don't, that would be what it would be. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. It's from a monastery in Mount Athos. Well, I'm going to break that down in just a minute. I've got a new handout uh, to, to pass around. We'll, we'll look at this. Obviously now you know, oh, I don't uh, need this. I have another book. Can you pass that back? And I'm going to send two stacks around. I, th I hope we have enough copies. If not, um, folks can maybe share. So let's look at this here. Um, one thing that you have to remember is the, the actor is always Jesus. So in the, in the Christian faith, if it's ever a question about, am I going to do something or is Jesus going to do something? Your best bet is saying, probably Jesus is going to do it. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the actor. So when you ask the question, well, who's making the choice to be alive? Does the, does the dead man make the choice or is the dead man chosen? Uh, you have to first say, well, who is the actor always? It's never the dead man, it's always Jesus. Jesus does the acting, Jesus does the work, Jesus is at the heart and the center of everything. So let's look at this. This is John 15, Jesus' words, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And this is just the beginning of verse 16, this is really important. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, when it comes to the apostles, that's really pretty obvious, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't march down the sidewalk like the Pied Piper and have people go, I'm going to follow that guy. Jesus goes to where they are and he tells them, hey, you, I want you to come with me. He makes the, I have chosen you to be my apostle. You come with me. There it is right there. But this also branches out beyond that. Generally speaking, Christ does not, or I do not choose Jesus. Jesus chooses me. And then, of course, John writes here, we love him because he first loved us. How do you love if you were not first loved? So this is from St. Augustine. St. Augustine is one of the pillars of the church, a, a doctor of the faith. Um, and he writes, if we first loved him in order that by this merit he might love us. So if we try to earn his love by showing him how much we love him, then we first chose him that we might deserve to be chosen by him. So that's the way that, that the world would work. I'm going to show the king that I am so good he'd be a fool not to pick me for his advisor. I'm going to show the general that I am the most brave soldier in the whole army, so he'd be a fool if he didn't pick me and promote me and put me on his special unit. That's the way the world works, but it isn't the way the Lord works. He, however, who is the truth, says otherwise and flatly contradicts this vain conceit of men. You have not chosen me, he says. If, therefore, you have not chosen me, undoubtedly you have not loved me. For how could they choose one whom they did not love? That's pretty harsh indictment. Not only did you not choose Jesus, you didn't love him. 
But I, he says, have chosen you. And then could they possibly help choosing him afterwards and preferring him to all the blessings of this world? The, the answer to that rhetorical question is, well, no. Once you've seen how good Jesus is, how could you possibly choose anything else? Once he's made the decision to come to you and show you who he is and love you, how can you say anything other than, wow, this is the most wonderful, beautiful thing in the world. I want to love him too. He loves me so much. Look at all this that he's done for me. But it was not because they had been chosen that they chose him. Not because they chose him that they were chosen. There could be no merit in men's choice of Christ if it were not that God's grace was prevenient in his choosing them. Now this gets to the question, and, and I sort of try to answer this here, of, well, who's the one doing the work then? Because you can say, I have made the decision for Jesus, and I say, you didn't. The fact that you say that you made the decision for Jesus and even tried to is the evidence that Jesus first made the decision for you. Jesus has been the one that opened your heart and turned a dead person alive. So the fact that you want Jesus is actually the work of Jesus for you and on you, that you have been regenerated and renewed to the point where you actually want him, and all of that he does. So, Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Those are active, not passive. Ask, Jesus says. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now you say, I should then use this to say, I'm the one that's going to do it. Jesus said, if I knock, I'll find him. So I'm going to make the decision to knock so that he opens the door and I can come in. But you're missing one big thing, and that is the Jesus said. How do you know to knock if Jesus has not told you you may knock and invited you to knock and attached a promise to the knock? So Ambrose, who is Augustine's teacher, says, has this beautiful prayer. And I'm sorry, I, tr I, I try to cite things correctly here, and I don't have a citation for this one. It's just a prayer. Lord, teach us to seek you and reveal yourself to us when we seek you. Lord, teach us to seek you. We wouldn't know that we're supposed to seek him and obviously wouldn't want to unless he sought us first and then told us, come find me. And then we say, yes, yes. And he says, and when you come to find me, all of this bl blessing is yours. And you say, okay, yes, I will do that. But that is always a response to the thing he has done first. For we cannot seek you unless you first teach us or find you, except you reveal yourself to us. Don't become proud when you say that you found Jesus, because it's like playing hide-and-seek with a toddler, and the toddler is proud at finding you when you were behind the sheer drapes, puffing them out like this. Oh, I hope they'll not find me here. And then they open it up and say, I found you. And you say, oh, how did you ever do? Oh, rats. Oh, you're a good finder. And the child thinks, I'm a, such a great finder. That dad can't hide anywhere from me until you decide that you're tired of losing at hide and seek. And then you hide for real. And then they cry because they can't find you. This is not personal experience, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so the Lord reveals himself to you and that's how you find him. It's not that he's 
hiding and you're such a good finder that you, find, that you found him, he said, hey, I'm going to be right here and I want you to come find me right here. And you say, okay. And then you look around and you find him and you say, oh, I found you. I'm a good finder. And he says, okay, you're a good finder. Right? Let us find you in love and love you in finding, O Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, beautiful prayer. But that's, that goes hand in hand with this promise that Christ gives of, hey, ask and you'll receive. How? Whose act? Well, it's mine because I've opened myself up to you so that you can come to me because I'm a God who is overflowing. That God is a God of love means God is a God who is overflowing with himself. He can't handle himself. He's overflowing. He has to give himself out. So he makes you to give himself to you so that he can overflow into you because he wants to love, but he wants to be loved because love is not so great if it's just one-sided. It's a beautiful thing to love, but it's an even more beautiful thing to love and to be loved in return. There's a wholeness there. So what do we believe now as Lutherans? Well, in the third article of the Creed, in, the, in, in Luther's small catechism, basically we say, um, I believe one thing and one thing only, and that one thing that I do believe is this. I believe that I cannot believe. That's, that's the summation of the, that entire explanation, the small catechism. And if you're not familiar with that explanation, it's pretty long. So this is like the absolute Cliff Notes version of it. I believe that I cannot believe. Then how do I believe? Jesus lets me believe. Jesus opens me to believe. Jesus chooses me. Now, you know, I'm not mean to people that say I made the decision for Jesus or I chose Christ. Um, I, I just kind of say, well, you know, good for you. But there is a deeper and more important aspect to that, and that is what I would always choose to focus on more, and that is maybe you did choose Jesus. But again, if you look at everything we've looked at, how do you choose Jesus if not by Jesus? Jesus is the one that lets you choose him. So it's still the work of Jesus. So I care less about you making the decision for Jesus, even though I want you to love your Lord, and I care more about Jesus making the decision for you. That's always the thing. Am I doing it or, I, or is Jesus doing it? Who chooses whom? It, it begins to become such a much more beautiful thing when you realize Jesus is the one that's doing this. Jesus loved me so much that he opened me up so that I could have him. And it makes it all the worse then when you realize that to deny Jesus and to say no thank you to Jesus, that's what unbelief is, is saying no thank you to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, ask and I'll give you. And, and, and unbelief says, no thanks. Jesus says, come find me. And unbelief says, I'd rather not. But the thing that makes unbelief all the worse then is that unbelief is not ever ignorant. There is this underlying idea that, oh, I didn't know. But it doesn't really work. I mean, sure, we send missionaries out and every and that's great, and we preach the gospel and all that. But, but if we're going to talk about, hey, all of us right here, right now, 
if you ever said, I think Christianity is a load of baloney. I don't think God exists. I don't think any of that. Well, you've been made alive and have been opened up from the outside in to receive that. And you have said, yeah, thanks for the paddles, but I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Thanks for doing this, but uh, I'm going to go hit the beat myself now and take off without you, and I don't really want anything else to do with you. That's unbelief, and that makes unbelief all the, all the worse and all the more grievous and grieving to the Lord. Um, any questions about any of this so far? This is a lot. This kind of, this class is a, a fun drink at a fire hose. <laughs> a lighthearted drink, okay? Um, this is one other thing that I want to impress upon you. Who is Jesus? Okay, the Son of God. Good. But now if I ask you this question, what is the gospel? How do you answer that? What is the gospel? All seminarians or, or potential seminarians in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, before they can even get into the seminary, have to receive a letter of recommendation from their pastor that says, this person is somebody that I think would make a good pastor and I, if, and I would encourage them to go do that. And they have to receive a letter of recommendation from their district president, which means you have to go as a college student to be interviewed by a panel of district officials that then determine if they think you are somebody who will make a good pastor. When I went to do my district interview, the district president and half of the office was sick. So they had a bunch of substitutes. And one of the substitutes was, was the wife of one of the guys, one of the pastors who worked there. And she was very well-meaning, and I'm sure she's a wonderful lady. But there's a big difference between being interviewed by a whole bunch of district official pastors and being interviewed by the wife of a pastor. And her question, this is the, this is the question still that stands out to me. She said, can you please define the gospel in the most simple term? And I said, okay. It is the message of forgiveness in Christ. And she said, no, that's too long and too complicated. It needs to be more simple than that. And, and everybody's just sitting there. And, you know, I'm 19. <laughs> I want to go to the seminary. I don't know what's the right answer. Sweating bullets in the district office while this woman is pressing me about what is the gospel. And I, so I said, okay, uh, it is the message of Christ. And she said, no, that's too complicated. What? It needs to be simpler than that. And I just said, I, I don't know what you want. And I never found out what she wanted because then one of the other pastors jumped in and said, okay, let's just move on to something else. <laughs> and at the time I thought, oh, thank 
God. Uh, and now I look back and I say, I, I want to know what she thought. But I've learned, you know, maybe this is not right, but I've learned from dealing with people what she, what I think she expected to hear. And what I think she expected to hear was this. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus. And that's not right. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Word of the Father, who is the second person of the Trinity. That is who Jesus is. What is the gospel? The gospel is the touch of Jesus. The gospel is how this person of the Trinity touches you and relates to you. So gospel is an even broader term than simply the holy gospel according to St. Luke or Matthew or Mark or John. Those are the gospel of Christ because they are the words and the deeds of Jesus. Now, in the Lutheran church, one of the things that we do liturgically is that for the reading of the Holy Gospel, the congregation stands up. Why? Because the Gospel is the actual words and deeds of Jesus, not just an, a historic account. That's actually why I kind of like the Red Letter Bible. I mean, it's not essential for a Christian to have a Red Letter Bible, and I, I like the idea of the Red Letter Bible even though it has its own issues. But when you look at it and you say, this is what Jesus is saying, not this is what Jesus said. Everything is in the present. This is what Jesus is saying even now, so that when you are in church and you stand up and the Holy Gospel is read, it's not that some guy in sparkly clothes is standing up and reading to you a fun story about something Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It's Jesus standing up in front of you and speaking his words to you just like he did to somebody else 2,000 years ago and making his miracles happen through his words right before your very eyes. It's the words and deeds of Jesus in the present just as in the past. That's what the gospel according to St. John or Matthew or Mark or Luke is. But what else is the gospel? <coughs> the preached word is the gospel. There's, there's a phenomenon about uh, your ability to hear. Think about this for a minute. You're sitting here right now drinking coffee, eating treats, listening to me talk. How is it that you can hear me talk? What's going on that allows this to work? Yes, it's not, there's no vacuum here that when I talk, my voice 
is speaking words and the words are actually traveling to your ears and my words are touching your ears. And when they touch your ears, the touch of what hits your ears makes your ears react and you are actually hearing a touch. So that when the word of God is preached, that is the gospel because Jesus is touching you with his word. Jesus also touches you in the sacraments, the holy things of the church. That's a very physical thing. Nothing in the church is spiritual only. That's something you absolutely must understand. Why not? Isn't God spirit? Yes. But what's the big important thing that happens at the culmination of Advent with this spiritual God? He becomes man. Why does God have to become man? Why can't he just save man with all of his power being a God of spirit? Because it's not enough. Spirit is not enough. And you want to know how I know that? Because you are not spirit. You have spirit, but you are not only spirit. You are spirit and you are body. You are spiritual and material, eternal and temporal. So if God wants to interact with you, he has to interact with both. He can't interact with you only as spirit, and he can't interact with you only as material. He has to have both. Look at the Old Testament. How does God appear? God of Spirit appears. The very fact that he appears shows you Israel needs an interaction that is physical. He is a pillar of cloud, or he is a pillar of fire, or he is a whirlwind. There is something that is physical. There is a voice that is heard, a touch to the ear. Why do the Israelites worship a golden calf? It's easy to look at the Israelites and to say, weren't those idiots aware that the God who just brought them out of Egypt is their true God? How do they turn away from God so quickly and worship an idol? It's easy to say that, but that's not what's happening. They're not worshiping an idol the way that you think they are. They think they're worshiping their God. Moses has been gone for so long, and Moses is the persona of the Lord. Where Moses is, they know where the Lord is. This is what I told you last week. The pastor is in persona Christi, which means in the person of Christ, in the place of the person of Christ. So when the, pastor, when the pastor is doing pastor things, he is Jesus to you. When the pastor is preaching, it is not the pastor preaching, it is Jesus who is preaching. When the pastor is giving you the sacraments, it is not the pastor who is giving you the sacraments, it's Jesus who is giving you the sacraments. 
The pastor is Jesus to you when he is doing the things that he is supposed to do according to his office. When he says, your sins are forgiven, it's not the man, this is my joke, if it were up to the man, I probably wouldn't forgive about half your sins because I know you. My people, I mean. Mound City's a small place and the jungle drums beat hard and loud and fast. <laughs> the kids are always impressed by how I know everything. They say, oh, I did this and this. And I said, I know, I heard about it. And they said, ooh, <laughs> pastor knows everything, okay? So if it were up to me, I probably would just not forgive half of your sins because I didn't like what you did or I thought you were not repentant or I thought you were a jerk. So it's a really good thing it's not up to the man. The man doesn't have a choice when it comes to that because it's not the job of the man to make the decision. It's the job of the Lord. Again, this is why the pastors in the, Lutheran, in the, in the Catholic tradition, so you know, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, some Anglicans, conservative Presbyterians, this line, why they vest, why do they wear vestments? Why does the pastor cover himself up? Because he's trying to hide from you. Because I'm hiding from you and I don't want you to find me. I want you to find Jesus. So again, the only thing that matters are the feet that bring Jesus to you, the hands that put Jesus in you or on you, the mouth that preaches the word to you, and the ear that hears the sins that then don't come back out. Yes? If a non-ordained pastor preaches the gospel... What is a non-ordained pastor? Like a normal person. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just making if, a if point. If they preach the gospel, are, is Christ speaking through them too? In the, in the same way, but just the pastor is set apart to do that job all the time. The pastor is set apart to do that job. The, the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord, and the, 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 word is, the Lord is speaking. Reading the Bible is not the best example, because everybody is actually called to do that. You are called, as, as fathers and mothers even, to be the priests within your own home. So you're not ordained to be a pastor in whatever church, but you are called to be the priest of your home to proclaim Christ and to teach Christ and to read the words of Christ, which is delivering Christ in that home. But see, you're, not, you're also not called to get up in the pulpit on Sunday morning or to lay hands on the penitent sinner and say, as a called and ordained servant of Christ, I announce the grace of God unto you. Like that, does that answer your question? The, the word of God is the word of God. And when... When the gospel of the Lord is read, it isn't, it isn't the reading that is the issue. It is the fact that what is being read is actually happening in the present tense, not something that we are reciting as an account of something that took place a long time ago. It's made real and it's made present and it's brought to you every time. So the gospel is still being delivered because Christ is the one who's doing the work because these are Christ's words, not anybody else's. Now, if you stood up and you just started saying your own words, well, that's a different thing. But if you're up and you're saying Christ's words, they're Christ's words because they're his and he is the one speaking them. Okay? Um, so the gospel is the touch of Jesus. That's, that's really, really, really important. Now think about the implications of that. The gospel is the touch of Jesus. Think about all of the places now where Jesus touches you, either you know, with, the, with the proclamation 
where the word is hitting your ear or, uh, or where the actual hands are touching you and things like that. Or, or um, you know, in our church body and others of the Catholic tradition, when the host for communion touches your tongue, that's the actual flesh of Jesus that is touching you. There's a, there is a very real encounter with the very real Christ, and it is present tense happening. So we don't come to church to recollect things that Jesus did. We come to church to receive the things that Jesus is doing. And that is his gospel. So let's look now. Um, I'm going to hand something out to you. And while I hand this out, I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 6. And here is where we're going to begin to explain, can you pass that back, what is meant by, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Here's the... And actually, before I hit that, I just want to read one quote to you because I love it and I think it's so beautiful. This is by a fellow named Robert Farrar Capone. He did some interviews and, and this is what he said. Jesus came to raise the dead. Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be anything. You just have to be dead. That's it. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love it. All you have to be is dead. As long as you're dead, Jesus can work something with you. If you're smart, well, that makes things more difficult. <laughs> uh, if you're, you know, think of the Magnificat. Um, the mighty he will cast down from their throne. If you, if you fill yourself up with yourself, he can't do as much with you because then he has to actually work backwards. Being dead is just the best. Be dead and then he'll work with you. He'll raise you up and he'll give you all the qualifications that you need. The only thing that you have to do for the Lord is just be dead. He'll do the rest. Okay. Now let's look at Romans 6. Romans chapter 6. Okay. We'll start at verse 3. Do you not know, and what I want you to know is that do you not know is really a rhetorical device because the answer to do you not know is, well, of course I know. Do you not know? Well, of, of course I know. Why, of course, you know? Because everybody knows. So when St. Paul says, do you not know? It's his polite way of saying, you dunces, everybody knows. Everybody knows that as many of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, if you look at that handout, there's a couple things to, to look at. First of all, I want you to see, um, obviously, we're getting into baptism here. Uh, how do you die before you die? Where is that spiritual death? Well, it is with baptism. How do you die before you die? You go to the font. You were baptized. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You die spiritually before you die physically. So that when you die physically, you are not dead because you've already died and been raised. Now your body just waits for its resurrection in Christ. That's the deal here. That's why the Christian can have hope of life even in death, because I've already died. Oh, what's, what's the world going to do to me? What's the devil going to do to me? I've died with Christ, I've been buried with Christ, and I have already been raised with Christ. What more do I need? That, therefore, we have this hope of everlasting life, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. So, here is the, the early church, and... Um, Lutherans might be dismayed by this, and folks of the evangelical persuasion might be encouraged by this, but yes, the early church baptized by immersion. Here's the biggest problem. I don't have a problem with baptism by immersion. I don't have a problem with baptism by sprinkling or by dunking, like the Orthodox do. Have you seen that? They put that baby right in the font. The best is the ones in Russia where they take an ice pick to the font and go, king, king, and then take the baby and go, and the baby comes out like this. <laughs> oh, look some of those things up on YouTube. It's just, it's just great. Those big bearded Orthodox priests. <laughs> so, you know, I don't have a problem with, with that. Are you, are you baptizing as the water? That's fine. But see, this is the problem with the factions of Christianity is when they say, this is the way it has to be done. A baptism isn't a baptism if it wasn't at the YMCA swimming pool. Or a baptism isn't a baptism unless it was just a, a, an eyedropper. On the, or a baptism isn't a baptism if the baby didn't come out like this. That's the, that's the problem, is when you're, when you're saying, it isn't a baptism unless. Christ never put those stipulations on baptism. Neither did the apostles. The teaching of the 12 apostles uh, says, hey, you should baptize in living water by immersion if you can. But if you can't, you know, just sprinkle some water. And you should try to use warm water, but if you can't use warm water, then use cold water. Um, you should try to use clean water, but if you can't, you know, any water will do. Just, just make sure there's some water there, okay? That's what the apostles say. That's how the apostles baptize. What is the right way to baptize? With water and with the Word of God. So, uh, but anyway, so here's the early church. They baptized by immersion. I like the idea of immersion because you get the idea that you actually are drowning and dying. That's the, that was the point of immersion. So the baptismal fonts would look like this. There would be, it would be in the shape of a cross, and there would be steps down into the center, and you would only go one way. 
and it would start on the outside of the church going in. So you would start outside the church, walk down in, be dunked down, be brought up, and go up on the other side, and then they would clothe you with garments because you were baptized naked. Now think if we tried to get away with that nowadays. <laughs> so you'd go down in, you'd be baptized, you'd come back out on the other side because you'd never go back out the way you came in because there's motion, which we'll talk about in just a minute. There's motion from one side to the other. You go down, you come out, and then you're clothed with a white robe and then brought into the church. Come on in, you. That's your door right there. The things that go like this, those aren't the door. The water is the door. Come on in. You were dead and now you're not dead. Now you're alive. Come on in. That's your door. That's why in our sanctuary here, and if you're not familiar with our sanctuary, go on in there. You can take a look at it. The baptismal font is right there. When you walk through the doors of the church, the first thing that you hit is the baptismal font. Right there, right? So you go through that to get in the first time, and every time you come back in, you're reminded that this water is what brought me in. I died, and now I'm alive, and it's here. This is the door to the church. Um, and then here you see there's a comparison with Romans 6. Jesus dies, is buried, is resurrected. This is baptism. I go into the water, and I die with Christ. Why don't I go back out the same way I came in? Because you're leaving it behind. That's your old life. You go down, you, that, that you're, you're crucifying, you're burying with Jesus, that doesn't come back out. You come out on the other side and he raised it to a new life. So here's, this is um, the last handout that I'll give you for today. Do you not want three? Do you just want one or two? Okay, I'll just, here. This is from an old Greek textbook from like the, the 1880s or something like that, 1890s, that I happened to find. And I, I love this. Uh, it's explaining all of the different prepositions in Greek, and it's doing it with pictures because it was written for children. Think about how far education, you know, some of you, once you get to be a certain age, and I feel like I'm on the cusp of getting to that age, can look at education and say, man, I remember when I, blah, 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 the standards aren't what they used to be. But, you know, look back to the 1800s when the kids were all learning Greek and Latin too. And you think, boy, the standards really aren't what they used to be, are they? So here's the thing, okay? Ace, ton, leonta, you see that? Ace is into the lion, and en to leonti, in the lion. This is really important. Um, Martin Luther has a great quote. He says, love the languages like you love the church. Why? Because that's how you really understand what scripture is telling you. It's in the language. So the language is important. Active versus passive. All of this stuff. Prepositions. So let's look at this. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus or into Christ Jesus. The baptismal font only has one direction. There's motion. Here's the thing, okay, ready? This is one reason why this is my favorite part of the class. Right now, I am out. Right now, I am in. I am out. I am in. But now, 
What am I? I am into. Because into is the motion from out to in. Into as a preposition matters because it's motion. The little boy is stationary in the lion's stomach, but he is going into the lion's stomach up here. There is motion from one place to another. Why does the baptismal font, why is it one, a one-way street? Why don't you go down in and then come back out the same place? This is the problem I have with baptism, baptism by immersion in the modern day because you don't get that same image. Like there, there was a whole reason why the early church baptized by immersion. You'd go in and come out but it was one way. Now you walk down the stairs wherever you go in, and then often you just come back out the same way you went down in. And then it's like, oh, but you've, you've lost so much. Some of the churches that baptize by immersion still do it really well. And I always really like to see that when you go down on one side and come out on the other side. But those are not as common. Baptism is one way. You were here, and here was out because here was dead. Jesus is life. He's here. He comes to you. He works on you. He leads you down. You die with him, and you come, at, you come out, and now you live in him. So those who are in Christ are those who are baptized. Those who are into Christ are the ones being baptized, and those out of Christ are the dead. There's motion. Here's the motion. You don't, you don't go back. You don't go back once you have begun. You leave it behind and you go down and you die and you come back out. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Because Christ has died and you have died with him and you have put on Christ and Christ has taken you into him, motion, so that you live in him and living in in him is life. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? The questions usually come the week after because people ruminate, which is fine. You know, the old collect, um, Lord, uh, you have given us your word. Let us so read, mark, learn, and the new translations of that, take it to heart. I hate that. I hate it. Look, sometimes the old language can be complicated and burdensome. I get that. But most of the time, the old language is so much better. Ruminate. Lord, you have given us your word. Let us so read, mark, learn, and ruminate. Inwardly digest. I love it because you think of a cow. out. I come from dairy farm. The cow's out there. I'm gonna, here's my grass. I'm going to eat the word of God. I'm going to swallow it down. Huh, that's pretty good. All right, here, mm, we're gonna, let's go back to that a little bit. Mm, okay. Oh, here comes tomorrow. Let's, and it's just, it, it's just always there. So I think I've got it. And then, oh, here it comes again. Just let it stew and ruminate and keep chewing. So that's, that's why I like this old language of the church. Um, okay. I think we're going to stop here. And... Uh, are there any, any last-minute questions here? Well, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. About the, the 
baptism from earlier. Okay. Like you were saying that, like, believe is, like, not our action. Correct. But, but you also said not believe is not ignorance. So it implies action there. Good. You're thinking well. Yes. So good. So here's the thing. You can only believe because Christ opens you up to believe. But once Christ has opened you up to believe, if you just let it happen, it's not so much that you are making the conscious effort, it's that you're just not fighting the work that Christ is doing to you. But opening you up to that also then gives you the ability to look at what's happening and fight it and say, I don't actually want this. And if you're doing that, you are exercising your will, but the problem is the ec most of the time, we'll talk about the exceptions next week actually, most of the time exercising your will is in opposition to God because your will is a, on its own, not a great thing. So it's not that, that you're dead and then say to Jesus, hey, can you come make me alive? You're dead, Jesus makes you alive and says, now come and follow me, and you say, no. Jesus, if Jesus says, take my hand and I will lead you to this place, you're saying, all right, fine. You're letting something happen. And it, it's, it's kind of active, but there's a passivity to it as well, because Jesus is still the one who is doing the work. But if he says, here, Take my hand and I'll lead you along. And you say, get that hand away from me. I don't want anything. I'll find my own way. You're exercising your will, but you're the problem is you're asserting your will over the will of the Lord. Instead of letting your will be conformed to the will of the Lord. What you want is for your will and the Lord's will to be the same. But... In this other, you know, if you say no thanks to Jesus, then you're doing the same thing that the, that the devils did, the fallen angels did, and saying, my will is just as good as your will, and I'm going to use my will to go this way. And the Lord says, I've made you alive. That's, that's your prerogative if you would like to do that. But it's not really good for you, and I'm going to keep chasing you around and trying to get you to just let me, let me lead you. And uh, as long as you know that, I mean, you can go. But so you're, you're, you picked up on something good. But, but the, the point, the deeper point is only one who has been made alive has the ability either to let Jesus have his way with you or to try and have your way with Jesus. Um, fast food church is bad church. Fast food theology is bad theology. Theology that says, I'll have it my way. What do you want on that theology? Pickles, lettuce, however you want it, that's problematic because you are asserting yourself over the Lord who says, this is how it's going to be. Let me take you and lead you. You're a sheep. When Jesus calls you sheep, it's not a compliment. You, know, you look at the paintings and, oh, sheep are so fluffy and cute. And Jesus is, oh, they're, they're so nice. And you get such nice feelings until you deal with sheep or know somebody who deals with sheep. And then you realize sheep are 
disastrous, abominable, stupid animals. <laughs> and then you look at Jesus saying, hey, you guys are a bunch of sheep. And you go, how? <laughs> That's not as nice as I thought it was when I looked at the artwork. I would rather have it be like the artwork. Okay? But, but the point is, sheep need to have somebody to lead them. So the sheep can fight the shepherd. You can be that one cantankerous ram. And the shepherd's always chasing him around the pen. Come on, you. Trying to assert himself over his shepherd. Or you can be the docile sheep that says, hey, yeah, he's never done me wrong now. You know, there's a great quote from St. Polycarp, who was martyred. He was, a, he was a disciple of St. John. He was martyred. They uh, burned him at the stake, and then he didn't die, and the fire didn't consume him, so they stabbed him to death. But anyway, right before they killed him, they gave him the opportunity to recant, and he said, for, what is it, 85 years, my Lord has never done me wrong. Why should I consider that he would do me wrong now? That's really the attitude of every Christian. The, because you're the sheep. Well, the shepherd's never done me wrong. I mean, he made me alive, didn't he? He made me alive. He feeds me. He takes me to all the... He protects me. Like, he does all of this for me. That's pretty good. He's never done me any harm. Why should I think, logically, that all of a sudden he's going to change and start doing me harm? Well, logically, you wouldn't think that. But you can then say, you know, he's done me no harm up until this point, but, you know, some guys are real SOBs, and I think that this shepherd's maybe one of them, and you never know when they're going to turn, so I think I'm going to just cut away from this flock and do my own thing. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So, like, the people that don't believe, it's not that um, the Lord say, I don't choose you. It's more like he chooses everyone yes good mm -hmm. the lord the lord does not the lord does not desire that any would die condemnation breaks the heart of god he does not want it he is not the judge that so i know i grew up i was a calvinist and one of the things the calvinists teach is that um that the Lord predetermines, well, that person's going to go to heaven, that person's going to go to hell, that person's going to be saved, that person's going to be damned. And then he says, now, Jesus, when you go to die, only die for the people that are going to believe, because those other ones, they're never going to believe. They're not worth it. And that never sat well with me, because that's not how God has revealed himself. How is that love? Damned, saved, damned, 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 saved, 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 damned, definitely damned, saved, saved. I mean, that's, how is that, how is that love? So the thing is, it's not that God wishes to damn, it's that damnation is the consequence of rejecting the Lord. I will make you alive, and you can choose to run away from me if you want, but I am life, and if you run away from life, you're going to have death. There is, there is a consequence. I have, I have atoned for your sins. I have given you life. And we'll talk more about this um, in one of the other classes. But, but it's basically, you know, unbelief, unbelief is not ignorance. Unbelief is a rejection. Unbelief is a rejection of, of the Lord. 
And the un, there's only one sin that is unforgivable, and that is the rejection of the Lord. Basically, that's the sin against the Holy Spirit, is saying no thank you to Jesus. No thank you. I'd rather try to make it on my own. The problem is you just can't make it on your own, but you don't realize that. You think that you're good enough to make it on your own, and it isn't until you can't make it that you realize you can't make it. But by the time you realize, I can't make it, I probably should have gone back and accepted, you know, followed, followed the guide instead of trying to make my own trail. It's, you, you can't get back to where he is. So condemnation is a result of unbelief, not the punishment of God because he hates the unbeliever. Does that make sense? Okay. Great. Sure. My my grandmother always had a hard time with that because she said, you know, <laughs> she said, what if I'm the guy that that was a great Christian my whole life, and then there was the the guy that. Uh, rejected the Lord until the, right at, at the point when he died and he said, you know what, I shouldn't have done that. I repent of my sins. Uh, Lord, forgive me. I have been poor and wicked. And then the Lord saves him. I mean, then what's the point of doing it my whole life? You know, and then the answer is, well, there's a parable about that. Uh, because the guy goes out and he gets workers at the beginning of the day who work their, their full good right day. And then there's the ones that come in and work for an hour and they get the same amount, and he doesn't say that I'm going to pay you what is fair. He says, I will pay you what is good and what is right. There's a difference between what's fair and what is good and right. In fact, you actually don't want a God who is fair, because if you have a God who is fair, you're toast. <laughs> because a God who is fair gives you what you deserve. And the God who is not fair gives you what you do not deserve. So God is not fair, and the reason why you know that is because Christ died and he was innocent. He died for you. That's like you being punished for what your sister or your brother did. That's not fair. And that's what you would say when you were kid. well, that's not fair. But now as a Christian, you don't look and God and say, hey, now wait a minute, that wasn't fair. I want my sins back. I want to take care of you. Why did you put them on that guy? I mean, you're not going to do that. You rejoice in the fact that God is not fair because it always is an advantage to you that God is not fair. You're always the benefactor when God acts unfairly because you are the one that doesn't get what you deserve. Somebody else gets what you deserve, but you get off. That's good. That's what you want. A God who is fair is not a God who you want to be a part of. Let that stew for a little while. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, 
forever and ever. Amen. Hey, okay, thanks. It's good to have so many people here. I'll make a bigger line of tables for next time. Um, get some coffee. If you want coffee for the road, get some treats. Take some oranges. Anything you want, just lay it in yourselves up in the old King James language.